The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibilities for the stories contained herein. Hey, everyone. We just wanted to thank everyone for this past year and all of you who have tuned in and listened to the podcast, all of our guests who have been so gracious to allow us to interview them and share their stories with us. This has been an interesting year. Both Kendra and I have learned a lot. We are definitely not the same people or podcasters. Can we call ourselves podcasters? I think we can. We have a Spotify rap, so like we can do whatever we want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we've earned that right. But I definitely don't feel the same as I did last year. And we are constantly learning, constantly growing as people. And same as our listeners, you know, we appreciate all of the attention that you give us and the likes and the subscriptions. According to our Spotify wrapped, we were listened to in 23 countries. I'm sure some of that is VPN stuff, but maybe no, I mean, no, no, <laughs> no, it's yeah, it's definitely 23 countries, um, which is amazing because there's no one else behind us doing this. You know, it's me, Kendra and our editor and that's it. We're a three person team. And the fact that anyone listens to us, especially with what we talk about is amazing. And we are just so grateful to everyone. And uh, like Rich said, we're a three-person team, and we've been spending the year growing, learning. We put a lot of effort into this, and because of that, we're fucking tired. So we are taking a month off, and you will not hear from us until Wednesday, February 1st. But yeah, we wanted to let everyone know that we're going to be off for a month, um, trying to get some rest and relaxation and recharging for next year. Uh, so if you like what we do, share with your friends. If you don't like what we do, share with your friends. Because it's you probably have at least one good friend who will share with their friends. Also, if you support uh, what we're doing and you support what you hear, write it to review. That's another great way for us to get more eyes and ears on the podcast. And we're trying to grow as much as we possibly can. Write to us. We're happy to speak with you in general. You don't have to be a guest. We have resources. If you need anything, let us know. And otherwise, you will hear us on February 1st, 2023. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough a podcast that aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn our community. This podcast may contain graphic descriptions of sexual abuse and assault, including rape. These accounts can be triggering, especially for those who have also experienced sexual trauma. If at any point during this podcast, you feel yourself getting triggered, we suggest taking a break and taking care of yourself before continuing. But we do ask that you continue if you are able. These conversations can be mentally and emotionally taxing, but they are so important to have. Welcome to another episode of the Enough Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kendra Sheets. I am your other host, Rich Gill. And we are here today with a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Crystal Bowen, but some people may know me as hip hop artist Psalm One. I also have another pseudonym. I go by Hologram Kizzy or Kizzy Tangents. You know, a lot of good rappers have extra names. You got to have multiple <laughs> names. You can't just have one. Yeah. <laughs> hip hop and you don't stop. <laughs> yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I am originally from Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> yep, big Midwest gal. Uh, grew up in the 
golden era of hip hop during the Chicago Bulls tear and run and dynasty. Yeah. Those are kind of like my formative years. Um, I went to Whitney Young High School, which was a very competitive high school, which is where I discovered my love of chemistry and also um, became friends with my first crew, Paradox or PDX, which includes Open Mike Eagle and my homie Riff Napalm, as well as some other really, really amazing rappers like my homie Misfit. So I started hip hop in high school and continued that passion through college where I got my degree in chemistry, believe it or not. And during that time, getting my degree in chemistry, I used music as a way to sort of uh, relax my brain and ended up making so much music that by the time I graduated college, I had a full length album (laughs) that was ready to go because the engineer and the producer who worked with me Um, His parents loved the fact that we were making music together and pressed up my first CD. So my first record label was my friend Manny's parents. Uh, (laughs) That's awesome. That's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It was. It's very interesting. So coming home with a degree in chemistry, but also a shrink wrap barcoded album that was able to be sold was huge for me, but also it meant a lot to the Chicago hip hop scene, which I wasn't really a part of until after college, but I made a big splash and started uh, making music and performing with a group called Nacrobats led by Pugsley Adams. You should definitely, if you ever want to do some cool hip hop knowledge on Chicago scenes, uh, Nacrobats is a great place to begin. There's a book about us. But I started becoming very, very um, serious about rapping at a professional level uh, when I came home from college. And uh, fast forward a few years, I got my first record deal. I signed with Rod Sayers Entertainment uh, based out of Minneapolis. So that is the connection there. And then I spent four years in Minneapolis starting in 2017. Yeah, almost five years actually in Minneapolis. That is sort of in a nutshell. Um, I became a chemist, then I became a rapper, uh, and then I became an author. So we'll see what's next. But right now, I'm talking to y'all on the Enough podcast. So you, your 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 resume is is vast. It's nuts. Speaking of the author bit, talk to us a little bit about the book that you have that came out recently. Yeah, um, I released a book with Haymarket Books. They're kind of like a socialist, abolitionist-leaning publishing house, but they got little me's rap memoir under it, and that's something I'm very proud of. I wanted to do, I wanted to write a book before I ever wanted to be a rapper or anything else. I, I excelled in creative writing and English class in high school, so that was always just a huge passion of mine. And I think it sort of informed my skill set as a rapper, you know, just being into literature and into grammar syntax. Yeah, storytelling is both of those worlds, so it makes sense. Yeah, if you're a good storyteller, you're a good writer, period. So um, I tried. I started a book in high school. It sucked. I got probably like 30 pages in, and I was like, this is terrible, and just kind of didn't stick with it. You got to have more life experience first. Sure. It, and it was like kind of like sci-fi kind of horror thing but like I was kind of writing in circles and it 
didn't make sense after a while and i was just like this sucks no one no one's gonna love this um <laughs> so but when this uh music journalist her name is jessica hopper uh she does a lot of great music com uh, commentary she uh was calling for pitches on twitter and i dm'd her and said hey i want to write a book but i don't know where to begin and she gave me a really informative template about how to write book pitches and she told me kind of how some successful authors kind of started their approach to pitching a book um i spent a few weeks writing my book pitch i sent it back to her and then she said no i were not interested in this book but i know someone who might be so she gave me the no but she also gave me a, you know a recommendation and that recommendation ended up being someone who actually wanted to put out the book and this person is a poet and he had an imprint under Haymarket Books. Uh, so we took the meeting, wrote a more involved book pitch and they took it and we signed a book deal and everything and it was great. And I started writing the book and then the guy who brought me to Haymarket was embroiled in his own scandal of, you know, sexual misconduct. And it sucked so bad because it was like, oh man, like I just came out of this boycott yeah. i just did all these things uh for the community and for the survivor community in particular and here i am about to put a book out with someone who is oh. embroiled in their own scandal so thankfully haymarket was very proactive in that they contacted me before i had even a chance to think about how i was going to approach this because i was ready to take my book away and you know not put it out under that but they uh, they actually dissolved his label, his imprint under the under the book publishing house. He stepped down and my book got absorbed under the larger umbrella of Haymarket. And it actually ended up being a blessing in disguise. And I was really happy that Haymarket took that approach because, you know, as we all know, when when people get accused or called out, a lot of times the people in charge they kind of like shy away from making any sort of moves. A lot of times opt to stay quiet until things die down, as it were. And this was something that had been brewing for years and kind of like an open secret. So it wasn't something that they could really ignore. And I appreciate them being proactive, taking action and, you know, having disciplinary action. That actually put a pause to the book. So once we were, you know, kind of redoing the contracts and rewriting the language to, you know, include that happening. Um, I was able to rewrite the book, not rewrite all of it, but add some things because none of the stuff from um, 2020 and the boycott that I was involved with, none of that was in the book. So after this scandal happened, it actually opened up on the schedule and I was able to write about that experience in the book. And I think that it made the book way stronger in terms of the, um, the overlying themes and the, uh, the points that I was trying to make. So yeah, fast forward to earlier this year, uh, the book was, the books go through so many edits. So it was just like <laughs> a final edit, then it was like a final, final edit, then it was like a final, final, final edit. And it just happened to come out June 21st, and it was a really good timing. It's so important to the conversation of misogyny and hashtag Me Too and just a lot of these issues that we deal with in society, not just music. So I'm really grateful that the book is out, and I'm grateful that it's out um, during a time where um, we need books like that. You know? And what's the title? The title is Her Word is Bond. 
navigating hip hop and relationships in a culture of misogyny. Love it. All right. Let's get into it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about kind of your musical trajectory and you ended up in Minneapolis. Prior to that, you got signed to uh, Rhyme Sayers. And during that time that you were signed to them, thought you were signed to them, kind of was working with them, uh, you had a contract with them. Take us through kind of the ups and downs of what you experienced from like the high of getting signed to like the label of your dreams all the way through, I guess, what would it be like 2015, right? Uh, 2015 is when it became very clear to me that it was time to do something different. I got signed in 2005-ish after having just a ton of local press and a few small tours, doing a lot of work with not only Nacrobats, but with my main producer, Overflow, and with his label. But he was a huge Rhyme Sayers fan and was very excited when they expressed interest in me. And they expressed interest in me after I had a placement on uh, Casual from Hieroglyphics, uh, his album Smash Rockwell, which was like highly anticipated. And it was very uh, surprising. And I, kinda, I guess I kind of out of left field to have me on that album. And it got me a lot of exposure. And it also piqued the interest of Rhyme Sayers and when it, it was a it was like about a year long process for the ink to actually dry on on the contracts. Um it was a decent deal. Like the the deal itself uh wasn't too crazy um as far as like being predatory, you know? My my biggest issues with Rhyme Sayers wasn't necessarily based on uh, my actual recording contract. It was about neglect communication and treatment mostly but not to get ahead of myself I signed with them uh, waited another sort of like eight months or so for my album to come out it was the most buzz it was the most exposure it was the most uh, budget that I ever had so I had nothing to compare it to so it was amazing Um, but after about a year of touring it was so difficult getting them on the phone I had been instructed to get rid of my management and as the lone female and the only out artist, only queer artist, I do believe that I got treated differently than the other artists. And also, there's different races of people on that label. But as a Black woman, I definitely felt the chill. It seemed as though I had very weird relationships with everyone over there. And when it came to upper management, it was a nightmare trying to get things done. After about a year, it was it was really it was almost impossible, and I had to take a lot of things into my own hands, which made it confusing to my fans. If you're used to a big machine pushing you, and then now all of a sudden that big machine isn't really pushing you, but you're still associated with it, and you're still under contract, and then I do something on my own, it's going to have way less impact. So you know, I was swimming in choppy waters, let's just say. But I was able to release one album with them that a lot of people still love. It's one of my biggest accomplishments. If you look on Spotify, it's still one of my highest streaming projects. So um, it did make an impact where it was supposed to. But ultimately, my time with upper management was was not great. And then my interpersonal relationships with a few of the rappers there, you know, pretty toxic. From an outsider's point of view, from someone who's not familiar with the industry, labels like this sort of present themselves as like a crew and like a family. But ultimately, 
it is a business. And if you don't fit into what they feel is the business model anymore, then you get ignored as you kind of talked about. And it's very rare that an artist, not just rapper, but an artist will tell you that they're having issues with their label. It's, it's almost like a death wish you don't tell on the big mighty label because it not only shows that you're disgruntled, but it also shows other people behind the scenes and other labels that maybe you're not the right person. Um, for them, there are a lot of open secrets in the music industry, not to mention a lot of artists uh, of all genders who, who don't feel like the business is being handled correctly, but they can't really do or say anything about it because that's not going to make the label do anything faster. You know what I mean? You may or may not be familiar with Lupe Fiasco's major label problems where he was literally on Instagram telling his fans to pressure the label to make them put out a project. And, you know, we see it with uh, artists like SZA who talks about Punch at TDE that, you know, even though her album is finally coming out in a couple of days, but the fans, that's like a, a running theme. We're like, where is her album type of thing? So what I experienced was not uncommon. There was an incident that happened that long story short, one of their flagship artists was pretty loud and abrasive towards my ex-girlfriend. And it was just really nasty. And from that point on, I just got no, I, I was invited to the Rhyme Sayers 20th anniversary. But after that incident, I was professionally embarrassed when the biggest show in Rhyme Sayers history didn't have my name on it. And they had everybody, everybody had, who had ever. There were 29 anything. artists on that show. They had everybody who ever breathed on a Rhymesayers track. <laughs> everybody. What was it? Three, three Aesop Rock projects were off that show? Like, it, it, was... And no women, you know? Yeah, so right. So it was a glaring absence there. And when City Pages, um, the local um, alt newspaper that it no longer exists, but it was a huge, you know, publication for and very important for a lot of artists in the Twin Cities. Uh, I ended up doing um, an interview with them. I just couldn't really, you know, keep it inside anymore. I was devastated by that. And I didn't think that there were ever people who were kind of like secretly hoping that I failed or people that would possibly jump on the bandwagon if something was going wrong with my career. And I saw all of that happen. As soon as I said anything disparaging about Rhyme Sayers, it was like a fanatic cult. It's quick. They just whip up that mob in like a second. It was insane. And, yeah. You know, now I never rapped good. Now I'm a terrible person. You know, my my father should have pulled out. Like just so many. Like, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was just like, okay, I'm realizing too that a lot of Rhyme Sayers fans are like white dudes who like have issues with their girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> And when a black woman is saying, yeah, they didn't treat me right, they're like, F you, you know what I mean? I don't know how much I could curse on this. Oh, 100%. I got they're like, a trash fuck mouth. you, you fucking bitch. <laughs> like, you know, it's just so, it was so nasty. And I felt like it had less to do with the music and more to do with someone daring to say something against, like, this iconic label. We've seen the same thing with bands and other artists in general, right? Like, the person who dares to say something... They get attacked and the fans turn into this crazy mob and, you know, they yeah. come after you. And they, especially with social media, I mean, it's a very easy way to target people. You're hiding behind a screen. You can create a number, number of false accounts and you can say the meanest shit that anyone's ever contrived on the entire fucking planet through a keyboard. 
a friend called me during that time and said, just don't go on Facebook. And of course, if someone says, just don't go on Facebook, that's like the first thing you're going to do. And to my terror, uh, there was like a whole Facebook page dedicated to my article and me being off Ramsayers. And it was like a thousand people on that page talking about me and commenting on it. It was really polarizing. And I just got anxiety hearing about like my my chest tightened up just hearing that in my head like hearing that the like little spitfire like feisty bitch in me would be like yeah like a thousand people can't keep my name out of their fucking mouth like that rules (laughs) but then like i have really bad anxiety so i know like my actuality would be like me hiding under the covers and being like i'm never coming out never ever But, you know, I took note of some names that actually came back around in 2020 when this whole incident came back around. During the boycott, um, I was emboldened just because other people brought me up back up. I didn't bring myself back up. Ron Sayers continued to have incidents of, you know, misconduct and abuse and all kinds of alleged things that, you know, range from, you know, just toxicity in the workplace to the R word, you know what I mean? And, and some of these things were true. Some of these things weren't. And a lot of the stories that I became knowledgeable about were anonymous. A lot of the people that spoke to me, a lot of survivors that spoke to me, uh, wanted to remain anonymous and their stories aren't mine to tell, but I had them and I know them. And a lot of them turn out to be absolutely true. So I felt like I really had an obligation and a responsibility to speak out because now it was just even bigger than me. People could say, the whole time, oh, Psalm's just mad she didn't get on that show, or Psalm's just mad she didn't sell that many records. Well, there were people on the, um, that label that sold less records than me and got better treatment. So it wasn't necessarily a meritocracy. I just knew too many survivors to not say anything. And I, because I knew that I was never going to do anything with Rhyme Sayers ever again, it was easy for me to speak up because I don't care. You know, it's like, oh, they're not going to put me on a show. Like, bitch, they didn't put you on a show in years. <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. You know what I mean? Like, speak the fuck up. In addition to this backlash, you did get support from people. And I, you know, definitely want to shout out Kristen Crabtree for kind of. homie. My yeah. Cancer, sort of... My cancer sister. We were like birthday twins almost. Her birthday's the day before mine. And. We're the same age and, you know, we run, we run in the same circles in Minneapolis. That's the homie. Big shout yeah, out. Yeah, she is, she's great. Her and I have gotten pretty tight over the last year or so um, nice. also. So, yeah, um, definitely thankful for her sort of facilitating all this. But, you know, she, she also came out with her own sort of statement and story about what she experienced in the Minneapolis hip hop scene. And, you know, I, I wanted to you know, have you speak a little bit about the sort of solidarity there with the with the women in the scene mm-hmm. that has sort of come out of all of this? Um, so the George Floyd uprisings brought a new level of community and a new meaning to that word to me. And then once, you know, rappers started getting on their soapboxes and they started getting called out because it's like you can't speak for a community when you've been harming people as well, you know? Once that started happening and people needed authentic voices and I was just so happy to be very, very um, emboldened by the support that I was finally getting, support that I never thought in a million years that I'd be able to get, like the support that I didn't get on that Facebook page that I mentioned before. It was coming back around through people that I had never met or met in passing, people that were not necessarily in my corner or my friends. 
So understanding that there are people that are coming out of the woodwork saying, Song, I see you, I hear you, I believe you, and I'm sorry. You know, there are a lot of people, fans, Ron Sayers fans, who were really disappointed who came back and apologized to me because they were like, I didn't want to believe you, but now I see and I'm sorry. You know, people like Kristen very much stepped up not only through social media, but through checking in on on me and uh, DMing and until we were able to kind of meet up. So during uh, 2020, like the summer and the fall and even the winter, we met up so much to just talk about what do we do? Uh, and through those conversations, we just became friends. We became close because one thing about it, when bad things happen and people step up, they really do step up. So we were doing so many um, pop-ups for the community, giving giving uh, food, free food away, free clothing, free bikes. And then we were also holding space for survivors. And that just created a sense of community, for lack of a better word, you know, and uh, really a lot of love was shared in the Twin Cities between all different crews and groups of people. But, you know, I will say that the support that I, I was shown was something that I cherish and still have friends from that time. It wasn't like we did this work for the community and then like we stopped talking to each other, like we still talk to each other all the time and check up on each other. So um, that was definitely something that was surprising, but it was something that I hold really uh, near and dear to my heart because I felt so unsupported for so long that having that kind of support, it meant the world and it made me stronger. Did you feel that with Rhymesayers and with the fans, the animosity was stronger in Minneapolis? Did you go back and kind of deal with those things? Or were you in Chicago at the time or were you No, in I was Minneapolis? in Minneapolis when oh, all this shit. was happening. Okay, I so... thought you were safe over here. <laughs> and nah, I was in okay. Minneapolis. So you were dealing with it like straight on. Yes, and it was insanity. And, uh, you know, my therapist was working overtime. I found, you know, writing and praying and uh, a lot of strategizing about how to be effective and not just be emotional. Minneapolis has some crowning jewels about it musically, and Rhymes Hairs is one of them. And people get really, really obsessed with the things that they can brag about, especially being from a smaller place like I'm from Chicago. And there, you know, there is this unspoken sort of animosity toward Chicagoans in the Twin Cities. Yeah, Rich. Um, <laughs> I wish you'd calm down with that shit on the podcast all the time. You see how Rich just kind of like grinned a little <laughs> while I was saying it? That's how yeah. you know it's the truth. Um, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I love Minneapolis so much. Um, but I also know that there's some people that are like, fuck her. She's from Chicago. She's not even from here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like I've done a, I've done a lot in Minneapolis, yeah, and I've done a lot for Minneapolis, and I know that my legacy is stamped. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I say fuck Ryan Sayers. I'm still the first lady at Ryan Sayers. It doesn't matter if they if they Hell sign yeah. a million women. You know, I'm still that. I'm still I'm her. I am her. So it doesn't really, and it's something I don't care about anymore. I'm dealing with this like in my own situation. In music as well not that i play or do anything musically just as a participant of music um, sure. it became a very specific sect of the world became my entire world for so long that you think if i lose this i'm going to lose it's myself it's over. yeah, yeah. It's over. there's yeah. no more me left and then when you realize that you step back from that and COVID actually helped me do that and helped me do mm -hmm. this um because mm -hmm. like you were saying you know you hear all these stories i was for some reason a conduit of stories 
about assault and rape and, you know, all of this. So, and I started to hear the same exact stories about the same people in the exact same way. So I was like, well, three women with the exact same story about the same person. I don't know that that's not going to be true. And so when I was able to step back, I was like, oh, the world's a really big place. I made it really small and I filled it with people that I don't really think I want to associate with anymore. And it's so insanely freeing to get to that point. Yeah, when you realize it's just high school. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great way to graduate. I don't want to be in my mid-30s in high school anymore. I see people pushing 40 now in their 40s, and I'm like, you're still doing this? Like, you know you can't age gracefully in the music scene, right? Like, it is possible. People want to belong. People want to feel like a part of something. And it is the great equalizer. I mean, without... Without music, I would be nothing. It's not the fucking weirdo people who, you know, <laughs> let the tiniest bit of fame get to them or, you know, let the fact that they're fucking uh, a popular artist get to them or or just the fact that they got backstage one time. Like, because that's a big one. That's one thing that I saw so much of people being quiet just because they want to get backstage. It's like, dude, there's not even fucking anything going on back there. You know what I mean? It's either really boring or it, or it's like the most toxic shit you ever saw. Yeah. A lot of times it is just people hanging out on their phones. Or Literally like... my backstage before a show. I'm like, bitch, you don't even want to be back there. I have all this, you know, a- anxiety and like uh, anxious, really, really anxiousness just about what I'm about to do. And I'm not really the most pleasant person to be around right before a show. Kendra, like you said, you make it your everything. You know, and you make it like this huge thing where it really it's a condiment. It's not the hot dog. It's just the ketchup, you know, and I think people make it to be a lot bigger and more important than it is when when it's like uh, music should just bring joy and we should be like kind of a congregating to celebrate music. But a lot of times it becomes, you know, what drugs are available because um, in my book, I talk about my own addiction issues. Um, where, you know, you're backstage for drugs, you're in studio sessions to party, and the lines get blurred about what's okay and what's not okay. Rap is really misogynistic, and it's very patriarchal, and I think women have to have so much cognitive dissonance just to participate in hip-hop that a lot of times women will not fucking speak up because they already know, like, well, these dudes are dudes, and it's just like, nah, there's a lot of shit that ain't okay. You know, telling someone that what they're doing isn't cool, that shouldn't be a death sentence. But a lot of times people get completely ostracized or, you know, I think having conversations like the one we're having right now, the book I wrote, and a lot of a lot of stuff that's even going on with like Meg Thee Stallion and what we see um, socially, what's happening, you know, culturally. I think it's just super important that people become more, more knowledgeable of what, you know, kind of like the darker side of this stuff. And as long as we have social media, people are exposing themselves. You know what There's I mean? There's receipts like, for everything. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a lot of times when people get accused of certain things, it's like you can just wait. It's almost like a matter of time before they tweet something or post something where you're like, yeah, that fool did it. <laughs> it's like you just incriminated the shit out of yourself, man. So now The one um, that we always talk about is the... Uh non-apologetic apology mad libs where you can basically fill in the blanks and it's the same fucking template that like every single band artist pr person or whatever uses where it's like we hear you mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. uh drugs and alcohol working on yeah. ourselves oh, yeah. etc etc yeah. et mm-hmm. like, i'm sorry I'm if i did yeah. this yeah, yeah that's the one like... that one and then the i'm in therapy now that one really uh-huh. grinds my gears yeah yeah
we want to be mindful of your time and we could, oh, you know, yep. do uh, part two or three of this because oh, yeah. talking to you has been so great. But to sort of like wrap things up, you've touched a couple times on the boycott rhymes hairs thing with the problematic behavior at that label. And, you know, I just want, I kind of want to close it up with like letting people know that you do kind of vote with your dollar when it comes to this stuff. And when you don't support labels or artists that are abusive or problematic, that that's where it really counts. Like it's, it's very easy to tweet out a hashtag. If you're not taking that to heart and really following through, then all it is is just, you know, empty words, which venues and artists are kind of full of when it comes to this stuff. Fans too. I mean, and also I think rage wears off. However, I'll never forget what I went through and what some people told me and what I experienced and what I saw in my own eyes. Um, and when I, you know, say boycott rhyme says hashtag or whatever, it's hard to say like, oh, every single artist on there is, you know, someone who has things to atone for. That's absolutely not what we're saying. But what we are saying is kind of exactly what you're saying rich about like don't stream don't go to shows don't buy the merch and that's the only way really in this capitalistic society to really make a make a statement you hit them in their pockets and i think we did that and i know that there are some people who are like well this one artist on this label i'm never gonna let go of and it's like do you i'm not really i'm not here to tell you how to spend your money or your time but also now you know the info and a lot of times after you know certain people do certain things, it's hard to listen to that music the same way. And even that means that the boycott did what it was supposed to do. During our stra strategy for the boycott, we, we did lots of copy and, you know, videos and graphics and images to show people this is how you boycott. You don't buy tickets to the show. You don't buy merch. You don't, you know, when they come out with the like 80th anniversary of like your favorite album when you were 15 don't buy it it is just it's simple as that but it's also you know a personal responsibility but yeah it's very important to believe survivors and to just stop putting artists on this pedestal so you know you feel like they're deities and they can do no wrong like these are just humans and everybody's everybody makes mistakes Enough is a podcast centering on surviving abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, booking agent, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential. <laughs>